Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Brought to you by the state historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In this episode, we fast forward 300 years from last episode's discoveries at an exciting archaeological dig at an early settlement site on the Connecticut River and take a look skyward as Connecticut Explores Elizabeth Norman talks with Jerry Roberts, Executive Director of the New England Air Museum in Windsor Locks, about the past, present, and future of Connecticut's International Airport. This is Elizabeth Norman, publisher of Connecticut Explored for Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. As part of our summer 2016 Small Towns Big Story series, I'm visiting the New England Air Museum in Windsor Locks to talk with Executive Director Jerry Roberts about the 75th anniversary of Bradley Field, which he wrote about in the issue. Welcome, Jerry. Hello, how are you? Good. Your story in the summer issue on the history of Bradley Field elicited a letter from a reader suggesting that it might be time to change the name of Bradley Field to something that better reflects Connecticut's history. Nathan Hale International Airport or El Grasso International Airport were a couple of his suggestions. Bradley uh, was built uh, during the Second World War. Uh, it was in uh, the summer of 1940 when most of Europe had been overrun already by the German war machine. England was fighting for its life during the Battle of Britain. And people here on this side of the Atlantic realized that a place like Hartford, which was home to Colt Firearms, to the headquarters of all the major insurance companies, and a lot of financial groups were here, and of course Pratt & Whitney in East Hartford was making almost all of our aircraft engines. So we realized Hartford could be a very vulnerable strategic target. So we, we knew we needed to set up an air defense. And uh, Brainerd Airport, uh, Hartford's small airport, uh, you know, just wasn't going to be big enough to build an airport, uh, an air base. It was hemmed in by the river. And so they sent out survey aircraft, and they ended up up here in Windsor Locks, uh, which, uh, you know, those of you who drive past the airport may notice these long red barns. And this was all shade-grown tobacco fields. And so the state purchased uh, 1,600 acres of shade-grown tobacco farms uh, just outside of Windsor Locks and leased it to the to the federal government for like I think a dollar a year until 1960 something like that was the deal that was made and the Army Corps of Engineers in just five months transformed these tobacco fields into one of the largest air bases in, in the region an air base capable of supporting 8,000 uh, people um, over 300 buildings hangars, flight towers, everything you can imagine uh, and it was going to be called, and it was called, uh, the Windsor Locks Army Airfield. And the first three squadrons to arrive, uh, the 57th Pursuit Group, arrived from uh, Mitchell Field, uh, Long Island, in, in August of 1941. And in one of the squadrons was a young pilot named Eugene Bradley, and he'd been born in Oklahoma. And as the war was looming in Europe, he joined the Army in Oklahoma and went into flight training and went to Texas for advanced flight training in Texas where he got his flight wings, fell in love with a local Texas girl, married her, and so when he was transferred to Mitchell Field to start forming up this new pursuit squadron to defend New England, he brought his his young wife with him, who by this time was pregnant. There was no officer housing, no married housing on the base yet. The base had literally was just opening that week. And so they got an apartment in town, you know, with some with some people. 
And so here they come from uh, Texas, they move in, she's pregnant. Just three days after he got here, he was uh, in the ready room on the base and his squadron commander came in and said, you know, who'd like to go up and do some, uh, some dogfight training over the air base? And Eugene said, sure, I'd love to. I think he was 24 years old. And they went up to do this, this, this mock dogfighting. And at 10,000 feet, he got into a very tight turn. And these were very, very powerful, high-performance aircraft. And just from the G-forces, he probably blacked out and never recovered and went into a spin and crashed. And so the, the, the airfield was, you know, they, they named it the Bradley Army Air Base uh, after, after him. And he'd only been in Connecticut for three days. And imagine his poor wife going back to back home to Texas, pregnant with the, with the, no longer having a husband. So after the war, when when the, the the army handed the air base over to the state, there was suggestion even then, oh, well, why don't we name it something you know after one of our governors or some some other person? And I think there were enough people who cared to say, no, this should stay named after that young pilot, the first of I think 22 pilots who died here during training. So that's how it got its name, and that's why the name is still there. Wow. Uh, this letter writer wasn't even sure what process there would be, but it sounds like it's it's sort of been discussed and maybe put to bed. Would you, is that yeah. what you would say? I, yeah. I would say it was discussed a lot probably in the 1940s and 50s after yeah. the war. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't think there's any likelihood it would ever be changed again. And, you know, I, I felt the same thing, to be honest. I said, you know, why is this named after some kid from Oklahoma? But this is a kid from Oklahoma who came here to defend... Hartford from the air from our enemies yeah and he died doing it so that's a pretty appropriate name and then the base went through this amazing I mean it, it was uh, a lot of interesting things about the base it was the first base designed from its inception to be totally invisible from the air when I read your story and you mentioned that I was really like what how, yeah. how is that even possible but sure. you provided a photograph that right. we ran with the story yeah. that really shows it and it's pretty remarkable. Describe how that sort of works. So obviously they were, you know, we, we knew by this time that we probably would be going to war in Europe and they wanted to get some experience in building camouflaged bases because one of the things that both sides, the Germans and the, the British did, is they bombed each other's airfields. Right. Where they, you know, get the airplanes when they're most vulnerable. So we had this camouflage uh, detachment, that, that, that was their job, um, was to develop new camouflage techniques. And we'd already been doing this, by the way, in, in factories. Uh, factories mm -hmm. uh, were, were disguised this way. They put huge netting over them and they actually painted streets on the rooftops of factories mm -hmm. and so forth, and trees. So what they did here is they made these, these runways, and it's fairly similar layout to it. The, the runways are still laid out the same now, they've just been extended. But when they built these runways, they, first of all, they left as many of the tobacco barns in the surrounding area that they could. They then painted across the runways, actually embedded into the new tarmac that they poured, they, they crop lines. Mm -hmm. They actually put little stipples of, 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 um, of corn stalks and stuff in the runways to huh. camouflage it from the air. They, they built country roads which they actually had to move, like Route 20 had to be moved for the airbase. Yeah. So they painted old Route 20 through the middle of the airfield. And it was extraordinary. Problems that they had were, should be obvious, well they are obvious now, they weren't then, is that as new squadrons arrived to train here, because throughout the war squadrons from all over the country, both bomber squadrons, fighter squadrons, transport squadrons, came here and they, they get right over the airport and they're radioing down saying we can't
can't, where's the airport? We can't see it. And they literally <laughs> couldn't see the airport. Too successful. Too successful. <laughs> Absolutely. They even had the problem, because it took them a while after the war to undo all this. So even some of the airline pilots had problems finding mm -hmm. the base for a while. The other problem they had is they were so overzealous with their camouflage, like I said, they actually embedded organic material into the runways to give it a feeling of crops. Yeah. And, and as they were running up the engines to the aircraft, they started a lot of fires. Oh, wow. And so they had to take, scrape oh, all that stuff out of there. Oh, wow. So it was a work in progress. But yes, you've <laughs> seen a couple of the pictures, and I've seen you know, dozens of pictures, and it's extraordinary what they did. So just to back up a, a second, when the, um, so the state purchased the 1,600 acres of tobacco fields, uh, was that an eminent domain issue, or were the no, was it sort of the people felt the patriotic duty and or sure, were happy it's to sell? Or? Guy, a fellow named uh, uh, is a Dexter Coffin, I believe, is a famous uh, industrialist in the area who lived, yes. and he ran ran a business, and he. This is you know roundabout stories of history. He had a private plane. He loved aviation. This was before the war, and as the war broke out in Europe. Um, he realized that all across the country that private aviation was going to come to a standstill, that the Army Air Corps was going to take over all of the airports, and that the only fuel and, and, and provisions available for aviation was going to be military. And so he quickly decided that he was going to build an airport right up here in Windsor Locks. And so he originally um, made the deal to buy just 300 acres to build a private airport. And he was trying to find additional money, and he found out that the federal government was offering major grants to build airfields, and but it had to be done through the state. So he went to the governor, and and so the, the in a roundabout way, wanting to build a private airport, he actually hmm. drew the attention, and this became then the the air base. So he never got to, to fly his airplane out of here, I don't think. So uh, he had done some of the legwork in advance. He had done a little bit of the yeah. legwork, yeah. um, but it wasn't eminent domain. They just okay. they, they actually, what I think they did, there was the American Sumatra Tobacco Company, which owned all of this land. And so they either leased or purchased, I think they purchased the property from the tobacco company, and then the state owned it, and then the state leased it to the federal government. And it was supposed to be turned back. The lease was supposed to go till the 1960s, but they, they, they turned it over to the state in 1947, I believe. One of the other interesting things about the air base is that, that many people don't know is that there were prisoners of war housed here for right. a period of time. And I was reading back into uh, a previous article that we had done, just a short photo essay from images from the Hartford Times collection, that there were 600 prisoner of war camps in the U.S. during mm -hmm. World War II. So this was just one of, of 600. And, there were uh, a couple of hundred um, prisoners yeah. here. These were young men. Um, they were given the opportunity to, to, to earn a little bit of extra, I guess, money that they could spend on whatever they spent money on, gum and cigarettes or who knows what they spent gum, m yeah. money on, doing, doing road work and farm work. And they were actually leased out to local farmers. And I think some of them worked on the tobacco farms and, and other places around here. And yeah. they, I think they set up a craft shop and they made you know, some kinds of wood crafts that they sold in local shops. And, and so, uh, you know, the, the, the foundations of their barracks still exist. And the, the, the base was over near where the Connecticut Air National Guard base is. The Harvard Times photos are kind of those classically staged 
photos, everything looks like everybody's happy here. Right. So, But this wasn't Stalag 13. This yeah, right. Was... So after the war ended, uh, Bradley Field became a commercial airport mm -hmm. uh, dedicated by President Dwight Eisenhower, Charles Lindbergh, and Pratt & Whitney founder Fred Rentschler in right. 1951. And the new terminal was named for Francis Murphy, first chairman of the Connecticut Aeronautics Commission. So the yeah. Murphy the Murphy terminal has just been torn down, but it yeah. was considered a modern marvel of its day. That's right. When it was built, it was a a model of modern engineering. You know, the things that we're used to now, the arrival and departure ramp where you have different levels where you you know, that was not normal. It was, you know, that was all sort of a new new huh. thing and we've got wonderful pictures of when this was in the middle of nowhere and here's this modern modern terminal surrounded by farmland and bare runways and that big sweeping round parking system that they had you know the, the, yeah. the traffic system was built then it was very modern it was the newest newest and most modern terminal built at the time and when it finally was decommissioned in 2010 it was the oldest active terminal in the country I arrived here just as they were, they'd closed it, there were big signs, you know, saying, pardon our appearance, you know, and so I, one of the first meetings I got was with the, the airport commissioner and asked if, what are they going to do with all of that? Well, they're going to tear it down. They, they actually had a contractor that had bought the rights to tear it down and dispose of everything. So they very generously allowed us to bring many of our volunteers over here and we would go over and go through this huge abandoned terminal and and were able to take things that we wanted from from lounge seating to some of the great old you know terminal b signs the old clocks um stanchions you know bits and pieces a few ticketing desks things like that yeah. and then and then i kept looking at the tower and the tower was this you know the classically beautiful airport tower and i said what's going to happen to that and they're going to tear it down and so I, at first, somewhat jokingly, at least they thought so, I asked if we could have the tower. And when they, they finally realized I was serious, they said, well, yeah, if you can manage it. And so we put together all the logistics. We had to get, we'd have to get a special crane to lift the tower off and set it down on the ground, because they meant to just knock it down with, with wrecking balls. And we got all that cleared, and then we were gonna have to transport it from one side of the airport to the other, and they didn't like yeah. the idea of closing any runways as we lugged this huge flight tower across the tarmac. And to take it on the roads outside the airport, we were gonna have to remove eight sets of traffic lights. Oh, and of course, hire overtime state police escorts. And if, yeah. you know, so the costs were rising, but even, even with that, we were determined to do it. And then finally, um, they, they told us that the flight tower was built you know, in the 1950s, so filled with asbestos oh. and PCBs that mm. they couldn't let us take it until they'd completely stripped it, which meant we were gonna get nothing but right. a steel skeleton. Right. So instead, we, we spent a lot of time over there. Uh, we photographed virtually every inch of it. We remeasured everything because believe it or not, even the airport authority couldn't find the original plans. So we measured everything and took all the angles and photographs. And so a, a plan that we have in, in our future is to build, you know, we have three public hangars here, and we want to connect them with a new sort of terminal building uh, for visitors that will have a reproduction of Murphy Flight Tower up on top of it where people can go up and actually watch airplanes land and take off from our flight tower. And we did save, we saved, um, you know, some architectural features of it as samples yeah, when we yeah. get to rebuilding it, we, we save some pieces. Because I think by the time, you know, by the time it was torn down, 
you know, I'm kind of a big fan of modern architecture. Yeah. That mid-century is yeah. just hugely popular now. And it never struck me that that terminal, you know, was because it had been its original uh, kind of brick exterior had yeah. been covered over. Yeah. It had kind of, yeah. it had been, I don't know, you know, altered quite a bit in, in over the years. So It had been made out of, a, I've got some on my desk here, some yellowish beige brick that they yeah. built it. And then to try to modernize it, I assume in the like 1980s or something, they sheathed it in some kind of an aluminum sheathing, yeah. uh, almost like putting aluminum siding on. Yeah. Um, and it just couldn't be modernized. I, I guess, it. It just, you know, I, yeah. I personally, you know, of course I'm an historian, I love yeah. other things. Yeah, me too. It, it had that neat look. It had yeah. a little bit left over of the deco look. You know, yeah. the interior was pretty cool, like airports. You know, that golden age of flight in the 1960s that we think of, it had all that in there. Sweeping, you know, the railings were very cool. And um, I thought there, I thought they should have done something with, really cool yeah. with it. Yeah. But they've torn it down. They do have a plan which they haven't released to the public, but I've, I've seen it mm -hmm. for a new terminal, mm -hmm. but they're, they're not building it now. It's sort of in the works. You know, the good news for everybody, I think, for Connecticut and for us as, as being on airport property is this is not a dying airport. This is a growing airport. You know, these, they're, they're starting flights to Ireland, I think, in September. Right. Uh, they've started flights to L.A. already. Yeah. So it truly, and of course, they've all, always done flights to Toronto and Montreal, and I think they do a flight to Cancun, Mexico. Yeah. So it is an international airport. And now, of course, people don't realize what a, an integral city an airport is. That's why I was delighted when you asked to, us to write this article, is that, you know, it isn't just the gates and the terminals. It's, it's the, you know, FedEx and, and UPS and the Army Air Base and the Air Force Base and um, the signature flight, you know, the corporate jet and Bombardier, which is a, a service center from, from Bombardier aircraft, which are made in, Fran uh, in Canada. It's a whole community over there. And uh, once a month I go to, the, there's an airport meeting where all the tenants of the airport meet. And it's just, it's neat. It's a whole community. And and, well, in your article, you talk about, of course, once the new airport, the field, and then the commercial airport opened, it attracted related industries like right. Command and Hamilton sure. Sunstrand and yeah absolutely well like Command I think they started in the 1950s building their first prototype helicopters and what I think was the the the, the gymnasium for the air World mm -hmm. War II air base and Command is still right here in fact they just started building the K-Maxes again so mm -hmm. Command Hamilton um, you know Hamilton uh, which is now their UTAS uh, United Technologies Airspace you know went from building propellers for the old the old days, and now they build all the life support systems for our spacesuits. They've built the life support system for the lunar module. And any of you who have seen Apollo 13, the movie, and there's that great scene when everything goes wrong, and then they've got these engineers come in and dump out all these spare parts and duct tape and figure out how they can turn the life support system of the lunar module into supporting the astronauts in the command module. And of course, it shows all that happening at Houston. The truth is it actually happened here, a mile from us. And some of our volunteers, and this is what's wonderful, we have 150 dedicated volunteers, and a lot of these guys are retired from Hamilton or from Sikorsky or Pratt & Whitney. And so the very guys who are working on saving those astronauts' lives right here are, are giving tours every day to people. And they can, I think people are shocked. Someone comes here from the Midwest to get a tour, and all of a sudden they're talking to the guy who, wow. <laughs> you know, it's pretty cool. That's great. So that leads me into talking about the Air Museum. In, in 1959, a small group of, of uh, 
aviation historians, many of them, Hargit Lippincott in particular, was retired from Pratt and Whitney. You know, he'd be, he'd actually served with Pratt and Whitney during World War II because Pratt and Whitney, of course, made you know the engines that were used uh, in in many of the aircraft, and so they they formed this little group called the Connecticut Aviation Historical Association (CAHA). And it was just literally a group of guys and some documents, and they started collecting some documents and photographs. And then people would give them an airplane part or something or other, and they worked a deal out with the airport. There was some vacant property over on Route 75, now on the side where McDonald's and so forth is. And they started collecting airplanes, because the Air Force, the Air Guard base here, once they were done with certain airplanes, they could either send them to the boneyards out in California or give them yeah. to the to Caja. So Caja opened the Bradley... Uh, aviation Museum, and it was a collection of aircraft outside, and then they acquired the original World War II hangar to put aircraft inside. So by the late 1970s, they had a collection of a large number of aircraft, I think 50 or 60 aircraft, big aircraft outdoors, and then smaller aircraft inside. And then, of course, in 79, that freak tornado came through, and it tore right across the airport. It it, it tore a swath right through the outdoor aircraft, flipped them, tore them wings, tore them to shreds, and then and then destroyed the hangar. Yeah. And so there was this, you know, and of course going through the photo files, it's most people would have looked at those files and, and given up and said, okay, we're done. But this they probably attracted more volunteers after that and they the airport gave the organization fifty six acres of vacant property on the other side of the airport, which is where we are now. So they dragged all the wreckage over here, literally dragged the wreckage over here in piles. And there were still many of the World War II barracks buildings over here, so they filled them with smaller things. And then we built our first hangar, I believe, in 1981, I think. Um, and then this team of guys started restoring those aircraft. And they probably saved at least half of them. And oh, that's amazing. And then now we have these six hangars and big operation here. But talking about tenacity, you know, to kind of close a little loop, one of, one of the, 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 the founders uh, who died in the 1990s and his wife was the sort of the secretary of the organization back in the 1960s, and she just moved out of her house and moved into a home, and her daughter contacted us and said they're going to sell the house and everything in it just to be scrapped more or less we could come and take anything we wanted. So yeah. we went over there and went spent a day going through the his office and basement finding all these records from the 1950s and 60s of this organization when it was young and planning that someday they might have a hangar uh -huh. and you know and now it's, it was kind of neat to bring that home. So you had written for us another story actually the summer 2015 a year ago about the preservation um, activities yeah. of the museum and you've just touched on that a little bit some some of those uh, preservation and conservation projects taking you know 20 years but uh, yep. this dedicated team of volunteers but historic preservation one of the interesting things in that story is not only are you dealing with very large objects but there's a lot of challenges uh, right. th having to do uh, with the materials right. that were and, and used. you wouldn't think so initially I mean I, I came from a, a, a background of working in maritime museums as well and of course when you're working with with trying to save pieces of archaeology from the War of 1812, you have certain challenges, or, yeah. or in art museums, conserving great paintings, you know, from, from centuries. You wouldn't think that, that aluminum plexiglass is much of a challenge, but the truth is, 
you know, aircraft were not made to last 100 years. And uh, right. especially in the early times, they were made of wood, bamboo, uh, fabric, canvas, uh, wire, galvanized wire, steel wire, copper, uh, dissimilar metals that when they act against each other over time, corrode each other. Um, even the World War II aircraft that were the first ones to employ plastics and rubber, you know, gaskets and seals, uh, those things were never meant to last over time, especially if they've been out in the sun for a long time. Mm. Even a, a, a problem um, that we have, the Smithsonian has, is something as seemingly modern as spacesuits mm -hmm. are incredibly challenging to preserve because they were made to last, you know, for a couple of missions, and they were exotic materials, many layers of, of mm -hmm. mylar and rubber, you know, and 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 fabrics of, of different types and plastics and foam rubber, and they just begin to outgas and crumble and destroy each other with the with the dissimilar, you know chemicals that they're made of. Particularly because of the chemistry involved in those right. materials. That's, that's a typical challenge in uh, modern architecture as well because yeah. they were trying a, a lot of new materials and right. then finding that they didn't perform very well over right. time. Especially in and, combinations with yeah. each other. Yeah. Right, that's an interesting point. Tell us about a couple of the preservation projects that you have going on here. The one that was just just completed literally a few, like a month or two ago, uh, is this uh, this K-28 balloon car, and what that is, we, I, I suppose everybody has seen uh, an image at least, if not the real thing, of the Goodyear blimp, or now you'll see yeah. the MetLife blimps or whatever, but the, very, the Navy's very, very first airship, and it was like, you know, 1903 or something like that, 1904, was built right here in Connecticut. The Navy's first airship was built in Connecticut. And the Navy has had a long tradition of big airships, um, and you'd think, why the Navy? So the Navy, of course, dealt with, with, in both World Wars, submarine attacks on convoys. And so by World War II, we built a large fleet of huge dirigibles, and I'm talking about 240 feet long, the crew of 10, uh, with living quarters and everything on them, and machine guns and bombs and depth charges and radar. Because as a convoy is leaving, you know, coming from the Caribbean, from British ports in the Caribbean along the coast of the United States over to support England during the war, German U-boats would be would be mm -hmm. attacking them. Well, from 500 feet up, uh, in an airship, you could see that German submarine on the horizon, and you could even see it underwater, 50 feet underwater in the clear Atlantic. And then the balloon crew could then radio the ship's convoy, the escorts, to come and attack, attack the U-boat. Well, after the war and these were all made by, by Goodyear in, in Akron, Ohio. So Goodyear took one of these large K-ships, they stripped out all of the war material and crew quarters, just the shell of the command car, and they had Pratt & Whitney engines, mm -hmm. and Hamilton standard propellers, and that's the first airship they rigged for electronic night advertising. So after about three years of testing and proving that they worked and that they were a viable uh, division for the company, they realized you didn't need a 240-foot-long World War II blimp. You could make more modern, sleeker, more mm -hmm. efficient blimps. Mm -hmm. So this particular blimp was then, um, the blimp itself was probably destroyed. The, the car and the engine pods and everything were put out in the field, stripped out, and just left alone. And at some point, you know, 30 years ago, as we were becoming known as a major air museum, somehow these became available to us, and we, we, we trucked it uh, here and it arrived in a horrible state. I mean, there were animals living inside of these things, and lots of parts were missing. The engines were missing, the propellers were missing, the engine cowlings were missing. And a volunteer took over the project 
uh, in every project gets a crew chief who puts together a team. And he stayed with this project for 20, I think it was 22 years, and they just finished it. Wow. He's now just turned 91 wow. yesterday, I believe. <laughs> and he came, we had a big party after all this time. They had to find the missing parts where they couldn't find them. They fabricated them, mm -hmm. got the right engines, the right propellers, refabricated the engine cowlings, the plexiglass. And again, this is where we lean into the aviation community, like Bombardier has this, this big facility for repairing its airplanes. And so they're able to bend large sheets of plexiglass into compound curves for, for aircraft windows. And so they were able to, hmm. to, to make new windows for this thing. So that was a long-term project. Uh, another project that we're working on now is from the National Guard base, we flew these big Sikorsky sky cranes. These are huge helicopters that kind of look like praying mantises. They can lift up an army tank, they can lift up a, um, you know, logs for logging in the wilderness, and they also could lift up a big, sort of like a big mobile home, if you think of it, that would carry 30 troops, and they use these in Vietnam. And so we have one of these, they were actually flown off the air base here, and when it was retired, it was just brought right over here, set up in our field, and then of course it began to deteriorate. Any aircraft that's outdoors begins to deteriorate. So soon after I arrived, I said, let's, let's save that one. And so they're, they're, they're renovating the helicopter, and inside this big box that would carry 30 troops, we're now putting flat screen TVs, and uh, this fall, as the colors start to pop again, we're gonna have a helicopter land right here in our parking lot with cameras in the windows, fly around the airfield, out over the Connecticut River, and then land back here. And then, of course, we're gonna show that inside this pod. So visitors will be able to have a simulated flight uh, around the airport and over the river and also we're going to make sure that they see those red tobacco barns and so mm -hmm. they'll get the big bird's eye view of the whole story and i'm sure there's no no end of projects to, to no, do you know we have we own 107 aircraft in varying states some of them are pristine they've been restored they're yeah. they're glorious others are sitting outside and they shouldn't be others are in pieces in one of our storage hangars some are still in the condition in which they were damaged after the tornado waiting to be restored. Oh, wow. yeah. So one of you know things that I didn't expect to inherit when I took this job, but I did, is, is the task of saying which one of these airplanes are we gonna save next? Because some of them will never get saved. And so it's that, what combination of the aircraft's technology, story, how does it fit into the, the history of Connecticut aviation or whatever? And then amongst these 150 volunteers, you know, each aircraft that we have has its own constituency, its own fan club. And so you're going to break somebody's yeah. heart by saying, we're not going to restore that one. <laughs> and then people will one. come into my office and lobby me. Can you see? You know, it's great. I, I've never worked with a more dedicated group of people that it, come it is here. amazing. And whether they're aircraft restoration guys or retired attorneys or, or butchers or bakers or candlestick makers, there's something for them to do here. And it's it's amazing. And we also have some young folks. We we, we yeah. have uh, we have a 15 year old volunteer. Well, one of my favorite restoration stories you talked about in the summer 2015 issue was Howard Bunce taking us back and we get into controversial territory here because you know there's a big constituency in Connecticut, uh, at least in the Fairfield area, who believes that the Gustav Whitehead flew an aircraft in 1901 before the Wright brothers. And Gustav Whitehead was a real guy. He made aircraft, but there's no there's there's no verifiable proof that he actually flew them. 
So we're going to dismiss. And he, and he didn't really stay in the field, is my understanding as he, well. He, he, he did for a while. Experimented a little bit. He never and, evolved. That's right. Yeah. There was never a legacy that came out of that, like the Wright brothers or yeah. Glenn Curtis or something. He built some planes. He probably did hop and skip and jump them over a field, which someone yeah. could interpret as flight, but mm -hmm. it wasn't the sustained flight that the Wright brothers and others achieved. But the response is kind of the same, a similar story. It's yep. a sort of a wonderful time when you could kind of make this in your backyard. Well, so, so what and, happened which with Bunce wonderful. was this. So, so, so the Wright brothers flew in uh, 1903, and then Glenn Curtis flew a few years after that in New York. And Glenn Curtis spent his life locked in a patent battle with the Wright brothers because the Wright brothers patented every component of their flying machines. And so no one else could use ailerons or wing warping or all of these control surfaces w without trying to break the Wright brothers' patent. Well, Glenn Curtis realized that since he couldn't make and sell aircraft during that time, the way he could make money is putting on air shows because nobody had seen airplanes fly. So he found three or four daredevil young pilots, two of them right here in Connecticut, Charles Hamilton and Nels Nelson, and they traveled all over the country uh, at county fairs, and it was the first time anybody in any one of these states had seen an airplane fly. Right. They flew in Mexico. They flew in Japan. They flew in Canada. And in... in Connecticut, the very, very first flight, um, uh, Hamilton, Charles Hamilton flew a Curtis Pusher at the New Britain Fairgrounds in, in 1910, uh, and people paid, 25,000 people showed up to watch this airplane fly, and they produced and sold these little, these little medallions, which I have got one donated to us. Um, anyway, amongst that crowd of people in 1910 was this young 17-year-old Howard Bunce, and his family, I think, owned a department store in Hartford or Middletown or someplace. And he was destined to live his life running a department store with the family. But like so many other people, he was smitten with the air age. He wanted a part of this. And so he would, and I say this in the most loving way, he would stalk Glenn Curtis and Charles Hamilton from air show to air show. Uh -huh. And he'd get into their hangars and he'd, he'd bring in a measuring tape and he'd measure their airplanes and do sketches. And they didn't care. He was a young kid. He's just taking sketches of their airplane. And he went to his parents and said, look, I'm not going to go in the department store business. I want to be a flyer. I need to borrow 300 bucks so I can make an airplane. And, and in his barn in Berlin, he built his own version of a Glenn Curtis pusher. And then he took it to the Berlin fairgrounds, and he spent a summer camped out there living in a tent trying to make this thing fly. And he would run it up and down the fairgrounds, the racetracks. And again, I think they could hop and skip a couple times, and they might be able to say they flew, but they didn't really get up there and fly. But we know he flew at least 23 feet high because he collided with the speaker wire that led from the grandstands down to the announcing booth at the racetrack. And he, he, he hit that and, and, and crashed. He wasn't hurt. The plane was destroyed. He took the rubble of his plane back to the family barn in Berlin, and, and then he moved down and did other things. A neat part of that story is the most important thing to have was a good engine because powerful engines weighed a lot. They were like tractor engines and early car engines. were weight. He needed a light air, uh, air engine, and Bunce didn't have one. Charles Hamilton, who had been the first man to fly in Connecticut and who was Bunce's hero, Charles Hamilton heard about this kid making this airplane at the Berlin Fairgrounds, and Charles Hamilton went and visited them. And Charles Hamilton is a hero, national hero. And he says to Howard Bunce, you know, you need an engine for that thing. And, and Howard says, yeah, I know I bought this, this, this engine, but it's heavy and not powerful, but I'm going to make it work. And Hamilton said, that's not going to work. You're never going to get off the ground. I can get you a great engine. I can get, you know, Nelson is my friend. He makes great engines. I can get you a Nels Nelson engine. And 
young Hamilton says, wow, that's amazing. Great, I'll do it. And the only condition was that Hamilton wanted to be the first one to fly it. And here's a 17-year-old kid who's got chutzpah, and he says, no, I want to be the first one to fly my airplane. So he turned down the engine, which is why he had a crummy engine that didn't fly very well. So flash forward to about 30 years ago, two of our volunteers are driving in the area of Berlin. They're trying to go to some antique store out in the countryside. And they see two kids coming down a hill in a push cart that they'd made with probably some orange crates and some bicycle wheels. But our guys notice these are not bicycle wheels, these are early airplane wheels. They just recognize the style of the tire hmm. with no tread and so forth. And they, they stopped the kids and they said, where did you get those airplane wheels? And the kids were all defensive saying, we didn't steal those missiles. We just borrowed them from that barn over there. And our guys go over there and here's this barn and they open it up and here's the records of, of Howard Bunce's airplane. So the museum acquired that, we brought it here, a team was formed around it, and I think they spent a good 10 or 20 years because half the plane was destroyed because he had cannibalized it to try to make a second airplane. So now it wasn't just a simple thing of going to the Smithsonian and copying all the fittings of a Curtis Pusher. They had to copy the handmade fittings that this kid had built here in Connecticut from hardware stuff. But the one thing that was missing out of the barn was an engine. They tracked the engine down to a small town outside of Springfield, just over the border, uh, and the farm, this engine was being used to cut firewood, and the farmer wouldn't sell it. He said, maybe someday I'll be done with using it for firewood, you can come back and buy it then. <laughs> and we lost track of it. And one of the things I was hoping when we wrote that magazine article is that someone would read it and say, I've got this engine. <laughs> I know exactly where that engine, engine is. is still out there no, somewhere. No, yeah, well anyway, but these are the, these are, you know, the 17-year-old kid wanted to get it, and, and who yeah. could do that now? Right. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's fully fung. It doesn't fly, but all of the control surfaces work. So every day when kids, school kids come here, our educators are out there, and they can show kids how the yoke works, how the wires work, how the ailerons work. And it's yeah. sitting right next to this big Sikorsky flying boat, the, the yeah, great yeah. transatlantic. Yeah. And they can say, this is what's different, but this is what's what the, you know, the same things that are still on airplanes now that were on airplanes back then. What's new and what's in the works for the future for the New England Air Museum? Sure. We have six hangars. Three of them are open to the public. But then we have an area in the back called Area 51. That's, that's what I call it. <laughs> and it was an old, um, it was an old engine test facility uh, during the 1970s, a Pratt and Whitney test facility. And now it's all overgrown, like some Indiana Jones village. So I'd like to eventually. And there's also an old bomb bunker in our w woods from the bombs oh, were stored uh -huh. during World War II. So I'd like to create a, a, a hiking trail and a golf cart tour where people could take a golf cart or a hiking trail back into Area 51 and see, because a lot of the wrecked airplanes from the hurricane that went tornado that we never are yeah. still back there. So a cool tour of that. We have 56 acres of woodlands and there's even some, some lakes back there. I thought it'd be great to team with a local chapter of the Audubon Society and say, so you've seen our man-made wings, now go out in the woods and see nature's wings and, and yeah. teach kids the difference and the similarities between the, the wings of a, of a red-tailed hawk you know, and, and, uh, and uh, 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 an aircraft. The other thing is within our hangars, there's, there's, we're building two mezzanines uh, so people can get up another 14 feet in the air, elevators, and get up there and look out over our aircraft collection from above, a whole different perspective. We're just now going to bid. We were very fortunate to get a generous grant from the state and, and also a grant from the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. And so we're building these two mezzanines, we're putting in air conditioning, we're building new exhibits, so that's very exciting. And then we have some other, some other great plans for expansion. We're, 
were involved with Pratt and Whitney down at Renster Field. They've got the old, the old original Pratt and Whitney hangar and flight tower down there. We're, we're, we're involved in helping preserve that to make sure that that stays preserved. Uh, another project I'd love to do is, you know, all over Connecticut there were small airfields, and right. and airfields that were kind of famous, like where Howard Bunks flew. That was mm-hmm. there was a fairgrounds, and in New Britain there was a fairgrounds, and those places are still kind of there as public parks. And I'd love to build an historic trail that people could go visit all of the aviation historic sites. Uh, in Connecticut would be a nice thing to do as well. Well, thank you, Jerry, for sharing with us the story of Bradley Field and the New England Air Museum. We hope listeners will visit uh, the New England Air Museum this fall. Information about visiting the museum is available at neam.org. You can read Jerry's stories from the summer 2015 and summer 2016 issues at ctexplore.org slash listen. We've also put up links there to other stories from past issues about Connecticut's incredible aviation history, including the rise and fall of balloonist Silas Brooks, Sikorsky, still revolutionary, and Frederick Rentschler, the sky's the limit. And to receive every issue of Connecticut Explored, including the new fall 2016 issue featuring true crime stories from Connecticut, visit ctexplore.org. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Jerry Roberts and the New England Air Museum. In the next episode of Grading the Nutmeg, stories of law and order from the fall 2016 issue of Connecticut Explored. To read stories featured in Grading the Nutmeg and to subscribe to Connecticut Explored or purchase the current or a back issue, visit ctexplored.org. Thank you.